0: This is my theme today, where there is no vision. And vision is very, very important for all of our ministries. So I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Numbers and chapter 13, Well, I'm going to read the background of the challenges and, and call that I want you to be stirred by. In Numbers 12, 13, verse 1, It's headed in the NIV, exploring Canaan. And the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So the Lord's command, uh, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. And all of them were leaders of the Israelites. And these are their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shamwa, son of Zakir, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Horai, and then all their friends. I'm not going through that list, but it's 12 tribal leaders who ascend. And then we come now to read, verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people there Who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. And so they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin, as far as Rehob, towards Libo, Hamath. And they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes, and two of them carried it on a pole between them. That's some bunch of grapes, isn't it? And uh, along with the, some pomegranates and figs, that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Well, when they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. And here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, And the Canaanites lived near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of this land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size, and we saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak. These are probably those overgrown giants, um, eight, nine feet tall, um, which Goliath himself was, of course. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. And that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, "'If only we died or in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt?' And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, there's all kinds of poverty. There's material poverty where um, we can commiserate with those who've hit on bad misfortunes or they've lost some kind of work ethic in their mentality or they're spendthrifts and gamblers. There's the spiritually poor And Jesus said we can commend those. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It means a humble, God-dependent attitude. And then there is the congenitally poor who have an inner sense of poverty and lack of hope and and outward-looking and positive mentality. In Revelation 3.17, Jesus addresses the church at Laodicea and he says... Do you not know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? And of course, he opens a door of how to change that if if they want it. And so we see that the poorest people on earth are not those who are materially poor, but perhaps those who have eyes but no vision. Vision for what Christ is and what he can be to us. Vision for God's plans for His world and more particularly for the agency of His people. In 33 years of pastoral ministry, I have been uh, colliding mostly in the early years with people who I can only sum up as mean spirited and negative at heart, with very critical souls that live life in a rut. And they don't anticipate change, they don't want change. They remind me of being buried alive. And of course, a grave um, is a rut with both ends knocked out. And I want you to see, therefore, that God wants to bring us to some form of resurrection and 2020 vision for our lives and for the lives of people connected to us, our immediate families as well as any people we're responsible for in our churches, particularly if you're leaders. So it means this affects our views of finances. Offerings in many churches are pitifully low, small, and outgoings, therefore, are restrained and criticized. People who don't give foment criticism about any money that is spent. That's all very well, but where's the money coming from? Have you ever heard that kind of thing? And then it's new ventures and projects that God puts on the hearts of leaders or particular individuals in the church. Oh, we don't need any luxuries. Our building's doing fine, thank you very much. We can't afford a facelift. Fancy pants. What's wrong with the facilities we've got? Another challenge would be evangelism. Oh, we'll never succeed in this area. On this estate, nobody ever gets saved. Nobody stops and listens if we do open-air preaching. What are you talking about? People are word-resistant to the gospel these days. What about church growth then? Oh, I think our church is big enough already, don't you? I mean, there's not that many spare seats here. What are we going to do if anybody else comes in? I hardly know more than four or five people myself anyway. So we don't want to grow anymore. We won't know each other. And so it goes on. The power of the Holy Spirit in the church. How do you adopt that? Oh, don't get me onto that. I'm sick of people rattling on about revival. For goodness sake, if we go down that road, we'll have all wacky people joining us and messing up our church. And on it goes. Now, here we are then in the year of our Lord, 2014. It's still a fairly new year so there's still much ahead of us to achieve if we have vision from God. And what we need to know is that we're in this together as the Church of Jesus in this land. I thank God for every congregation where the Gospels preach, the Bible is honored, and Christ is central to everything that they do. But you see, we still have to see what God wants to achieve through our people. And therefore, we need to dream and then observe and become reignited with the thing that got us into this in the first place, vision. We're in this together. No wonder then that this is very clearly reported for our benefit, that this sampling of people, 12 men, go to the land that God has promised them to case the joint, and bring back an accurate report that is going to inspire everyone to see that this is what God wants us to do and we can do it. And the four stages of it are recruitment in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 13, and then reconnaissance in verse 17 to 24, and then the report that comes, the all-important reports, verses 25 to 33. And the repercussions of that report in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, which were not desirable. So let's look at the recruitment, and notice that while I skipped over it, the names of these 12 men are listed, along with their family background. So God records our names. He knows us all by names. It's that personal, the way God wants to communicate to us. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. And when the time comes, He's able to fetch you. I don't know if you've had a sense of being fetched by God, but I certainly have known that in three major steps in my in my life. One was when a, a call to the ministry came to me in 1969 at the age of 16. Do this maths, I'm 60 now. And uh, that was listening to John Stott in four-hour-long... Bible readings, expositions of 2 Timothy, the great pastoral epistle of Paul, which I've lectured on many times in the years since to New Frontiers students. That got me. I was grabbed by the lapels by a call to become a pastor, listening to the great John Stott on this wonderful letter. And everything I did from that moment on was to prepare for a life when that call came to its fruition. Decided what A-levels I did, university I went to, st- theology I studied there, and then uh, even becoming a high school teacher, because if I couldn't interest children, I've not got, not got much chance with the whole church. So I, learned, I did two years of high school, and then it all came to a head. Trained at London Theological Seminary that Lloyd-Jones founded, and then got a call to a church in Winchester, which I might tell you a little about later. But this is recruitment. And all of us are recruited to do something by God. And it helps us take seriously our influence on our own families, our churches, and our colleagues at work and neighbors that we have. This is what God wants us to have a vision for, the transformation of other people's lives through our agency. So I'm thrilled that God tells us these men's names I get anonymous letters regularly, and certainly quite a lot when I first came to the chapel. And, um, of course, anonymity is the game. They write a letter but don't sign it. And that is because people are cowards, really, if they have something to get off their chest. D.L. Moody once was passed a note when he was preaching at an evangelistic mission in, um, in London as a visitor from Chicago in the 19th century. And the note simply had four capital letters on it. FOOL! So he showed it to the congregation. He said, I've just received this letter. I've had many letters with no signature. But this is the first time I've had a signature but no letter. <laughs> Now, that's how seriously we should treat treat this kind of cruel criticism. We shouldn't take it seriously, let alone let it it hurt us. If honest people with good hearts want to correct some of our faults, that's fine, but not that kind of uh, superficial criticism. God knows their names, and God doesn't cover for them when they um, make their report. We often guard privacy and anonymity, but this chapter reports not only who these men were, but what kind of report they came back. I bet they regretted that, because it's gone in the Bible for all history, and it it reveals terrible things about them, their lack of faith, their foolishness, their misguided fears of what is gonna lie ahead of them if they obey God, all of which are irrelevant for God's people who've been called to do this. In his book, In Pursuit of His Glory, my predecessor, R.T. Kendall, wrote a book on his retirement in 2002. And it was the first book I read when I came to London because he gave me a copy of it. And it's the story of his 25 years at Westminster Chapel. And it's about not just principles it's about events, but there's very few people who are named and shamed in that book. In fact, when he did try to do that, he had friends who read the manuscript say, don't, don't put that in, you'll live to regret it. And he wisely did not slander anyone in any way. But it shows you what pastors have to put up with. And God didn't cover What happened in these men's lives? This is a lesson for all time of what to do when God gives you a vision which they saw, but you bring a bad report of what you saw so nobody else is going to benefit from it. Do you think that's a wise idea for Christians to walk around with? Not at all. So, God may well be recruiting you to have more vision for your life and for the people and lives that are connected to you. So, This is why we are recruited to have influence by God. There's not a one of us can escape influencing other people's lives unless we absolutely choose to do that and become a hermit or recluse. Either way, you're going to have an influence. That is, an influence that's been lost because of your foolishness or an influence that's going to be a wonderful gain to you and others. Vision is very important, and hence reconnaissance. Reconnaissance in verse 17 to 24 has to do with with becoming a people who see what God sees and therefore align with God's views and intent for what you see. They were to explore the land, and for them, of course, this was Canaan, the sphere of their future conquests and of their development as a nation and identity as the people of God, of the inheritance he planned to give them. I'm a strong believer that God has a plan for every person he calls to himself, an inheritance, a legacy that we're going to leave, something that God has donated to us in his grace, of influence, of impact, of productivity, of fruitfulness with our lives, Now, don't tell me this isn't seasonal, because it is. It's not a relentless, um, expansive uh, journey of nothing but good. That would not do us good. It would make us big-headed and full of pride. So we have seasons in the Christian life, seasons like autumn and winter, where nothing much has happened except death. But then spring comes and then summer, when the harvests are ready for autumn. And so we see, therefore, there is journeying, but on the whole, our lives can be fruitful and significant if we follow the call of God. And so what God, God wants them to explore are key things. God wants them to explore the territory to be taken. What the land is like. Is it good or bad? And then... What enemies will they encounter to be defeated? Who are their opponents? Are they weak or strong? It's important for an invading army to know all such things in advance. God doesn't keep that from us. Go and spy out. Go see what you're going to have to deal with when you get there. The third one is strongholds to be pulled down because there will be cities and fortresses, heavily armed fortresses that will stand in their way of progress. And so, how hard is this going to be? Find out the numerical strength, if you can, surreptitiously, and their wall defenses. Do they live in tents and sleep in the fields? This is not because God requires this information. It's because it's their job to get this information. He wants to know how they'll assess it and react to it. He could tell them right now, and they could have given up there and then in the wilderness. But he says, no, go spy, see the whole lot. And then lastly, he wants them to know what fruits are in that land that can be picked. Has it got a lot to show for the fact that these people are there? What rewards, therefore, are possible for you and gains? Look at their soils and orchards, their crops and their harvests. So often we do research to get the facts before we exercise faith in what God's calling us to do. And God doesn't begrudge us that. Now, faith is not believing in the absence of facts and evidence. Faith is believing often in spite of those facts and in the face of them. Because God looks for a people who have faith. A factual report then is needed. And it may make it hard for you to believe we can do this It may make it even harder for the rest of the nation in the wilderness to believe we can do this. But they need to know the facts. I want to see how they react to the facts God is saying in effect to them. So the report should excite wonder and amazement, but not be easily acceptable or something they could easily accomplish. Anything worth having is going to take a great deal of sacrifice and effort to have it. It's not going to drop into our laps as God's people. So they were not to give some bland, scaled down, politically correct public statement for the paparazzi that would appear in the daily bulletins. They wanted to give, they were wanted to give an honest assessment, good and bad, for the people individually to come to their conclusion about their participation in it, whether it was a no, or whether it was a maybe, or it was, yes, we can surely do this. So speaking about Jesus' call to his first disciples on the shores of Galilee, the Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth said, in making disciples, Christ ruined their careers. And you know, we may have had big ideas about what we're meant to do with our lives, but if God ruins those ideas, it can only be because he's got something better for you. When I was 16, 15, 16, I loved nearly every subject on our grammar school curriculum, except maths. But my favorite was art and design, and I wanted to be a commercial artist, my Art teacher used to tell me I had very good drawing skills and, and painting skills. But that very year, I was 16, I went to Keswick to hear John Stott preach. And those four talks changed the whole direction of my life. It's not that I can't still draw, it's just that I don't get the time to do it. I became called to the ministry, and I began to read theology in earnest. For example, I read Martin lloyd Jones's Sermon on the Mount in the lower sixth, when I was just 17. And that meant I could have got higher (laughs) A-levels if I hadn't been distracted by that magnificent material. But it hasn't handicapped me in any way. God has given me a mind to learn, and I've never wasted a day without study in the years since then. I can honestly say that. Now, speaking then here, he's right. God will ruin you for the career you might have planned for yourself. Why? Because he's got a vision of a better future for you. And if you've discovered that, God bless you, and may it unfold in all of its implications. So this shouldn't come to us as a great surprise. It's a summons to faith. It's a call to obey, to have a vision from God. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That I learned when I was first born again, and I've never forgotten it. Now, after a single premier carol service I did once at chapel, I counseled with a man of seventy man because he'd been converted at 17 years of age. But he had since wasted the intervening 30 years later because he'd never settled the question in his mind as to who was in the driving seat of his life. And although he'd come to faith at Christ at 17, he spent the last 30 years doing whatever the heck he wanted I did it my way, Sinatra put it, and he was in tears telling me this. First time I'd ever met him. I remember it because it was so salutary to me, because it was in utter contrast with the sense of destiny and purpose God had put in my heart subsequent to my um, conversion at 14 years of age. Now, 30 years is a long time to be in a wilderness, isn't it? But remember, Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. So you think at this point of getting to the edges of the promised land, there would be nothing but faith, hope, and excitement that the desert journeys were nearly over for everyone. Hence the spies and their reconnaissance. Oswald Chambers said, When we are born from above and the Son of God is formed in us, it's not the passing of the years that matures his life in us, but our obedience during those years. Well, it's never too late to start obeying God and pursuing his heavenly vision. Many people get discouraged. They get harmed. They get resisted. They get tripped up in pursuing a divine vision from God. But I think we should never give up Never, never, never give up. So that's signal advice. And this is what will bring the purpose to come to pass. Fulfillment and satisfaction. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon I read years ago, said that joy can be described in three words. Satisfaction. Satisfaction is the integration of joy, emotional and volitional desires all coming together to a place of deep satisfaction in what you're engaged with. I don't meet many Christians who are totally satisfied, and I rarely ever meet any non-Christians who are satisfied. And then exaltation, he says, that flush of feeling that arises in our spirits to an exultant note of a yes, because God's told you something he wants you to do and then the feeling of strength and power to do it. You see, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So the raw materials he gets in the first place are usually ropey, with nothing much in the bank, spiritually or morally speaking. But if God puts his hand on you, that's going to change everything if you cooperate with him. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Look at every man of God in the Bible. They've all messed up until God got hold of them and changed the direction of their lives. And that's what He can do for all of us. So, this is why God wanted this reconnaissance mission to do them all good and all of His people good. They wanted joy, joy in a promised land. Okay, well, come back and report. Come back and report and give everyone the joy that you've received. Well, here's the reports now in verse 30, 25 to 33. And there are, unfortunately, only two real alternatives here. You can give a good report, or you can give a bad report. One's marked by faith, and the other by some form of unbelief. When God reports to us, he does so to foster courageous living. So he wants these men's perceptions to line up with what he's intended for those people after those weary journeys through a dire, featureless desert where they're totally dependent on mercy, miracles every day just to keep them alive. There's more now. There's their own responsibility opening up to farm this land that is going to be taken. So the spies started well with a factual account of what they'd actually seen. And they even carried the visible proof of the fertility of this land in terms of a massive cluster of grapes, of a vine. Big, juicy grapes, probably the size of apples or pears by the descriptions given in the Bible. And so when they came to interpretation of this significant uh, place with the wonderful fruit, that's when the trouble started. Because Caleb and Joshua's minority report was very positive. But it was two out of ten people who were positive. We can surely do this. The other ten were not so sure at all. Their confidence had drained through the soles of their sandals. See, the majority report was jittery, and it was edgy and negative. There it is in verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. It devours those living in it. That was their conclusion, and we saw giants there too, and they are dangerous people. Now, this means that this divided the report ten to two, two who were for and ten were against. If this was a vote in one of our members' meetings, uh, nothing is going to happen from this point onwards, because the majority of the people are against it. Have you ever been in a church members meeting where the majority of people are against it? Yeah, God help us. Because if this is a call of God they're voting on, the vote should be unanimous. The pastors preach for it. There's visionaries on the eldership. They know God's with us. They preach their hearts out to inspire people. But some churches are congenitally ugly and negative about any change. Change? Who said anything about change? It's always been like this. Over my dead body. Well, you've probably been unfortunate, some of you, to be in such environments. It's not very helpful. Negative talk and criticism does that. The timing of this criticism is worthy of note also, Along with other leaders, I've noticed alien spirits can creep into churches, in the souls of people, and sometimes in terms of demonic attacks upon individuals and church leaders, whole congregations even. And I've noticed this happens either just before God is going to open up a really wonderful season for that church, which some people have glimpsed or just after a wonderful season, to stop it in its tracks. And this is where we must be people with discernment and faith to understand what God's up to. God tests us, you know. Sometimes he'll make life as easy as pie, but he'll also make trials come and difficulties. He's testing if we've got the endurance to see this through. Have we really articulated what we've seen, or did we make it up? Well, the only way we can know this is God will test a church and send trials for key people who maybe ended up in discouragement. I remember in reading that book, In Pursuit of His Glory, R.T. Kendall did not name names, but he certainly alluded to some of the toughest times he had faced in his 25 years as pastor of the chapel. And it was uh, in the mid-passage of that that he was accused by her- of heresy because of his teaching on grace and our freedom from the law as believers in Christ. Because he was going through this in the themes of Galatians on Friday nights while my wife and I were there. We were astonished that his teaching was being so hyper-critiqued by people who couldn't gasp this theme of grace that he was articulating. It wasn't antinomianism, as he was being accused of. It was accurate declaration of what the gospel is, and that our freedom from the law as no longer the guide for our lives in the way that our former forefathers in the faith regarded it to be. So, therefore... Uh, he then blew his reputation by getting people like Rodney Howard Brown along and other charismatics from America like Charles Caron and um, those who would do miracles in the chapel services, and people's bodies were all over the floor. This is Westminster Chapel. This was Dr. Lloyd Jones's church. But Dr. Lloyd-Jones, as many people didn't know till several books were published, was totally affirmative of Pentecostal and charismatic movements. And yet, they hadn't touched the chapel to any degree at all until uh, the late 80s and uh, maybe 90s. And so we see, therefore, that there's got to be people who will know the timing of criticism. And the nature of that criticism here is also remarkable. It was primarily focused on the problems as the spies saw them, not as God saw them. God knew, of course, that there were giants in the land, that they were well-armed to the teeth, that their fortresses seemed impregnable. He knew all that. But He wanted them to come back with a good report, and not so fear and blind panic. Because it betrays mistrusting God, who knew all that anyway, and has all the resources to help them deal with it by the Holy Spirit. Paul Reed, my friend from um, Christian Fellowship Church in Belfast, says that the whole churches, of, whole churches in Ulster are massively hindered by people who, quote, have an opinion on everything and a heart for nothing. An opinion on everything and a heart for nothing. I years ago, in those first three years in my first church, learned I am not going to be led any longer by my critics and their ugliness and lack of faith. There came a day when I and my wife made a covenantal commitment in our back garden we're going to do whatever God asks us to do. And he took me seriously on that because after one membership meeting after another, an ugly deacon's meeting that followed it, and then another ugly membership meeting where I felt like Saint Sebastian tied at the stake and arrows uh, flung at my chest all over again. I went to the Lord with this and talked with my wife, and she said, you know, it's like a in church that's neither hot nor cold, just lukewarm. They don't want any changes that would please God. In that moment, I went into my study, opened the Bible at Revelation 3, put an A4 sheet of blank paper down, and got what I can only describe as a download from heaven on what to preach from this letter to the Laodiceans, Revelation 3. And I was on fire with what I was hearing from God that needed to be said. More than that, I got a dose of massive and courage and hope that this is going to turn this church around. This one message, I'm going to preach this Sunday, this is Wednesday, I'm going to preach it this Sunday morning and I felt from the Lord the church will never be the same again. I called the message the church that made Jesus sick. Because you know what he threatened to do to the Laodicean church? Spew it out of his mouth. And I didn't want to be spewed out of Jesus' mouth along with all my people. I wanted them to repent, which is the counsel he gives them. So, it would be no exaggeration that I gave it to the church with both barrels and grace and promissory notes that the Lord had already told me. And I was specific. I named everything that had grieved the Holy Spirit for decades in this church and shamed it and challenged it with everything I had. I was quite willing to be sacked that week, and anticipated I would be, but I was going to be faithful to these people. And of course, I had to call them back that night for the evening service to come and repent. I have no idea who was going to come back, but two-thirds of the church did come back, and they filed in in absolute silence and sat down in absolute reverence, I could tell God had had dealings with them. My wife and I had gone out all afternoon so we wouldn't have to hear the phone ringing and we wouldn't have to listen to the letters being pushed through the post box on the man's door, um, which was right next door to the church. We called it the goldfish bowl because <laughs> people were always looking in to see what we were doing and what we'd bought. Now, Nothing could have prepared me for what really happened. There was about five or ten minutes silence as I joined with my wife on the front row and waited with them. And I said, we're going to respond to Jesus. That's all we're going to do tonight now. We're not even going to sing. We're going to respond. We're going to repent. I put before them this knocking of Jesus. If anyone hears me knock, and opens the door. I will come in, and you will eat with me, and I with you. This was the thing that broke my heart. This wasn't my church. This wasn't Jesus' church. This was their church, and they didn't want anything to change, and they didn't want Jesus in it. That's the only thing I can conclude. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside the door of his own church. I said, folks, we're going to ask him to come in. We're going to open the door and give him his church back tonight. That's how i describe it. It was very quiet. I sat down with my wife, five minutes passed of silence, and I looked to her and said, what have we done? And she said, Greg, what's going to happen? Five minutes lapsed, and then a man burst into tears and groaning. So sorry, Lord, so sorry for the way we've treated you. And then you couldn't stop. It It was like pulling a plug. People were weeping all over the building, crying their eyes out, probably a hundred of them. And this Well, I couldn't get them to pray like that for 10 minutes in our midweek prayer meeting. This lasted two and a half hours of repentance. And the church was never the same again. Jesus got his church back, and boy, did we know it. It was amazing the transformations that came incrementally from that point onwards. And God gave me a vision for what we should do. We raised, uh, five years later, we raised 500,000 pounds to demolish the building and get a new one on the same site because it was quite a big patch of land. We filled it within two years and then had to uh, look for another building that would be able to accommodate the people who were coming. And uh, on a single day, uh, we had an offering just before Christmas, having preached through 2 Corinthians 9 on the theology of giving where Paul's raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. The principles of sowing and reaping are there, and the principles of proper stewardship of our resources for the kingdom of God. And on that day, um, on the Friday before that Sunday, the check came for 50,000 pounds from a uh, Building Society with no signature. So whoever sent it didn't want me to know who it was. On the Sunday itself, we had two offerings for the morning and evening service and I was passed a note at the end of it and I couldn't, I couldn't speak when the treasurer handed it to me because I couldn't believe how, how this had happened. £800,000 came in from 300 people, most of whom were students or people who were um, you know, on low incomes, elderly people, where's that come from? And we knew this was the, m- the amount we needed because we'd cased all kinds of buildings in Winchester area and then alighted on a bingo hall. And that bingo hall, we, two of our elders became members of it to case the joint. <laughs> and they looked around these galleries and this massive floor space and the potential of offices front and back to be reverse, re- refurbished. And um, they even told us they'd throw in six car parking spaces on the municipal car park right adjacent to the building, which was separated with yellow lines, belonged to the bingo club. So you couldn't park on them. And they threw them in so the staff could have places to park their cars in the city center when they came in to church meetings and that. And, of course, the negotiated price was initially 1.25 million, and we talked them down to 850,000. And 50,000 came in the week beforehand, and the rest came in that Sunday. You You couldn't have manufactured that, could you? But God orchestrated it, and we whooped and hollowed, and the church, I then left it years later, a year later, well, we were using it for early morning prayer meetings and waiting for money to refurbish it. Um, and it's been refurbished since, it took about th- five years, and they raised three and a half million pounds to refurbish it. Isn't it amazing? So this is how I know God fulfills vision and resources it to the hill with people and skills and cash whenever it's needed. So, bringing a good report's a great idea, isn't it? Not saying we we cannot do it. It's not easy. It'll never happen. And now I'll finish with this, the repercussions. The repercussions of a bad report, however, are nothing like the testimony I've just given to you. God listens to our conversations. God listens to the way we voice faith how we speak out to God in prayer, the faith that's been ignited by a God-given vision. But where there is no vision, the people are going to perish. And so let me read to you again, 14, verses 1 to 4. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt or in this desert, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. In other words, Moses is sacked, Aaron is sacked. And if they don't watch their P's and Q's, Caleb and Joshua are going to be sacked as well. So that's what happens when negativity creeps into individuals and whole congregations. And it's been my observation that much of British church life since the 1950s has been crippled by legalism and a poverty spirit and a lack of faith and little passion about the gospel and a quenching of the Holy Spirit and of a loss of the fundamental foundational teachings of the Bible. For our faith, why even many charismatics have lived to go to sink themselves in the sewers of liberalism in recent past. I thank God for every move of the Holy Spirit that has happened since the 1960s onwards. Like many, I was alive to see that start. I had schoolmates who spoke in tongues. I was freaked out by this. I'd never seen anything that you could call the filling of the Holy Spirit or the moving of the Holy Spirit in church life. My church was a Baptist church that had been influenced by the brethren. It was dispensational in theology, so all that ceased. And so this mixture of unbiblical emphases robbed us of anything that you could remotely call spiritual dynamism in that church. People were getting saved through hearing the gospel, but church life was rather angular and difficult as it is, where the Spirit is absent in churches or being grieved in churches or resisted. So it's better that we give people the real reports of what God's doing and what God wants to do, yes, in all of our lives. And of course, Ed Silfoso, an Argentinian uh, Pentecostal leader, defines this as a stronghold in people's individual lives and in the corporate life of many churches and denominations. And he says a stronghold, and this is what you would encounter in Canaan, of course, in great fortress cities, heavily protected, is for us as God's people a mindset that is impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable situations we know are contrary to the will of God. The repercussions are deadly. So when in verse 33, these men report, it gives us this principle, how we perceive ourselves will be how our enemies will perceive us too. We are little in our own eyes and we look little to them, they said. But they didn't know that. What we do know from the story of the book of Joshua is they were terrified of these invading armies of Israel. They didn't consider them a little easily dealt with threat. They were scared because they'd heard rumors of what God was doing in their midst, in the miracles of even saving them for 40 years in a totally deadly, hostile environment. And so, it affected the mass of the people. And the two features of it is crippling nostalgia over the past. Verses 1 and 2. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses, and the whole assembly said, if only we died in Egypt or in the desert. That's nostalgia for a place that made slaves and prison camp members of them. Murmuring always says the past is better than the future that God's planned for us. It looks back to an imaginary golden age for their denomination, arguing that present worship is not that spiritual It's not spiritual enough, and present teaching is not as deep as we used to get when I was younger. Or when was this golden age then? There hasn't been a golden age of the church in Britain. There's been movements of awakening and restoration and renewal, and then we lose that ground and have to fight for it all over again. And we'll probably still have to fight for it for years to come. It's the selective memories of people that troubles us. That it wasn't as good as you thought it was. Because there was only about 40 of you in the church, and you knew each other, and you resented strangers coming. And if they did come, they didn't get a welcome. Well, that's been some of my experience anyway. (laughs) I used to preach in independent Methodist churches when I was 17. It would have been about 8 to 10 Old ladies with pins in their hats. It had seemed greater days, but they were no longer there. The past is not always a golden country to visit. And then second, paralyzing fear of the future. Verse 4. They said, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're scared. Spiritual amnesia creeps in and causes you to come to a place Where you will not take any risks any longer. You just want to go back to what you were familiar with and what you know, with no sense of guidance or history that is clear at all, let alone vision for what God has for us. Gene Edwards said The ability to see false is a cheap and common gift. It's faith talk that is rare and exceptional. Now, I don't know how you talk in your deacons' meetings, in your members' meetings, in your Sunday gatherings, in conversation with other people around you. Most critics are unhappy people in themselves. And they're unhappy now, and they'll be unhappy for quite some time to come in most cases, maybe till they die. So we don't let people like that dictate to us what God's telling us to do, no matter how radical it is. I believe that's why people want to go back to Egypt. They're unhappy, jaundiced, emotionally unstable, and often have distorted views of everything God has promised to his people. I was sent by the FIEC a questionnaire last week on questions on the Holy Spirit. My church is in the FIEC. My first church was in the FIEC. What's wonderful for me is that the top leaders are wanting to explore this issue from a spectrum of views, and they know where I come from on this. So I'm so privileged to have got a seven-question questionnaire where I could present the biblical case for continuationism, For the fullness of the Spirit, for the gifts of the Spirit, for healthy church life and vigorous spiritual dynamics operating in people's lives. And I've wrote 3,000 words of that. Uh, That was the limit I was given. I could have gone on, (laughs) as you could probably know. And what I think is we've got to break these myths of how great church was in The vague memories people have now in the 21st century of what the church was like from the mid-20th century in much of our land. We know what it was like. It was dysfunctional on the whole, not particularly effective, quenching of God's Spirit and His fire. Hardly relational at all in many cases, and sometimes full of many mean-spirited, powerful individuals who ruled the roost in a controlling and manipulative way. I don't think that's too jaundiced. I think it's the honest truth. So I ask you today, what do you see? It's funny how we both look at the same things and see them very differently. We look at exactly the same objects and we have different understandings of what we're looking at. How do you view this Bible? Nine-tenths incomprehensible? One-tenth undoable? How do you view the pulpit where preachers preach in front of you? Twenty minutes, if we're lucky, of twaddle and boring commonplaces. How about the God we worship? Remote in his heavens, never does very much among us. The congregation, bunch of losers. The location you're in, oh, no hope town. Nothing's ever going to happen here. This year, there's some folding. Well, same old, same old. Surely, what do you want me to say? The future that God has set before us. What future? The church is going down to hell in a handbasket, if you look at. If you ask me, and on it goes on. Vision is the only thing that can change all of this, because if you get a burning vision in your heart, you will give your life to see it realized. I gave my life to see my vision for the first church realized, and it was. And I've given the last twelve years of my life to see my vision realized for Westminster Chapel. And it's moved incrementally and amazingly to the place it's in now. But I would say only about a third of it's been realized yet. But I'm not a kind of person who gives up. I don't know how much longer I have in ministry myself, but I'll still be running when it's all over. And I want you to be running for the pursuit of the heavenly vision that God has given you. What you see is what you say. And what you say is usually what you get. And I certainly know that as a preacher. What I see, I say. And what I say, in the grace of God, I get. Because I think I've heard from God. And I think he thinks so too. So God bless you. And do be obedient to your heavenly vision. Amen.